This is TechSnap, episode 400, for March 28th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by Jim. What's up, y'all? Before we dive into the meat of today's episode, it's time for a little feedback. In our previous episode, we talked about machine learning and some of the dangerous problems that this new exciting technology might bring. Unfortunately, we got a little excited and maybe weren't the most clear about unsupervised learning. You could also say that we weren't as accurate as we could have been about unsupervised learning. Uh, Reader Joran Yuji on Twitter let us know that, uh, and he gave us a great link to follow from NVIDIA blogs about supervised and unsupervised learning, but basically unsupervised learning, a deep learning model's handed a data set without any explicit instructions on what to do with it. The training data sets a collection of examples without a specific desired outcome or correct answer, and the neural network basically just looks at it and tries to figure out interesting patterns all on its own. This includes things like clustering, anomaly detection, associations between different data sets, or autoencoders. If you'd like to see more, we'll have a link in this show note, and you can find all the stuff we talked about in that previous episode at techsnap.systems slash 399. This week saw some alarming news for owners of Asus Equipment, a multi-billion dollar computer hardware company based out of Taiwan, and that is Kaspersky Lab notified people that, unfortunately, Asus servers were used to unwittingly install a malicious backdoor on thousands of its computers worldwide. And unfortunately, this brings up a larger topic that's only become more prevalent of late, and that's the dangerous risks we see in supply chain attacks. This is not the first time that owning a laptop made by a particular manufacturer could get malware on your computer. Lenovo was very well known, unfortunately, for shipping malware out in a similar way. But where Lenovo actually meant to install Superfish on your computer, the uh, shadow pad issue on Asus was unintentional. To give you some sense of the scale, the researchers estimate half a million Windows machines received the malicious backdoor, which was actually pushed through official Asus update servers. And that's part of what makes this attack so tricky, right? You, it, it might make sense that you trust Asus to push vendor-supplied updates. They manufactured your machine. They can supply you with some of the firmware updates right from, right from the source. They, they were the ones who manufactured it, right? Unfortunately, that means you're now reliant on Asus. You're trusting them with your machine. And we have a lot of checks for this, and we can go into some of the methods and and why that didn't quite work this time. What surprised me is these updates, it would take a lot of work to have discovered this, even if you were being proactive, because they were signed with a legitimate Asus key. Yeah, this is a case of, you know, the attackers actually owning Asus's actual network and infrastructure and using Asus's own key to sign a uh, new and malicious set of firmware that then got pushed out through Asus system. So, uh, you know, it's one of those stories of the phone call is coming from inside the house. Kaspersky Lab said it uncovered the attack back in January and that it looks like, unfortunately, this had been pushed to customers for at least five months in 2018. 
you might think that such a broad scale attack that affected so many users, you know, would be some kind of low hanging fruit, uh, you know, whether it's trying to mine cryptocurrency or, you know, something that would actually make use of all those compromised machines. But this appears to have been a very unsurgical method of performing a pretty surgical attack. According to Motherboard, uh, only 600 of those half a million systems were actually targeted, which they could tell because the malware was looking for particular systems with unique MAC addresses. And once on the system, the malware only reached out to command and control server if it found one of those 600 MAC addresses it was looking for. Yeah, think about the scale of that from the attacker's perspective. You go infiltrate ASUS, carefully construct a new, they, they took an old release of this, um, and it's not even the firmware, it's the software that ASUS supplies that runs on your system to update its, you know, it, it's the updater that can then go update all the other ASUS software and the firmware installed. They took an old version of that, carefully modified it, you know, with their, with their change that, so that it would actually be, you know, turned into a Trojan, made sure to keep the file size exactly the same, signed the new binary with the official recognized key that was trusted on the client systems, all to target what looks like 600 specific machines. And then, you know, this, this was then downloaded and ran on machines all over the world. That also, in my opinion, speaks volumes about how trivial the attackers actually found it to own Asus's infrastructure, that they would burn that on such a relatively small attack. Yeah, right. I mean, if, if you were otherwise motivated, that's a great way to just spy on all those users, try to steal identities. There's any number of attacks once you've got, you know, once you've already owned all of these consumer systems. So to burn it, as you say, right, this has been detected. It's out in the public. They took a risk by actually using this vector once they got access. We're not going to see that again. I mean, we, we might, and we'll go into that. <laughs> but it was, you know, it's definitely a resource they had to spend. And we don't really know. We'll go into a little bit more background about similar attacks. We don't really know who's behind this. But it does say a lot about maybe how important those machines were. That's a great point that it wasn't the actual firmware that was Trojaned. It was the update system itself, which brings to mind some interesting questions about why companies feel like they need to make their own update mechanism for, uh, you know, Windows drivers and firmware rather than just using the Microsoft World Headquarters system, the WHQL, that could be sent out through Windows Update itself. Do you really need all these different competing package managers running on your system from arbitrary sources? You know, that's actually something I've been thinking about, and I'm, I'm curious about your take, Jim. How, how do you feel about that? So sometimes there, there can be good benefits to having diverse systems, right? So if, if let's say, Microsoft's central system was, was owned the reach would be huge. And in this case, I don't own any ASUS systems. So, you know, this didn't, it might have affected me in other ways, right? ASUS systems on my network, but it didn't directly affect me. So that's one nice thing. But we then have the risk of every single individual instance. And in, if you have a slightly more centralized or at least, you know, bigger system, you can, in theory, have more resources to defend it and analyze it and set it up securely. Where do you fall on that? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, you know, if you're running a Windows machine, you're going to be a part of that enormous reach of, you know, the Windows update repositories potentially getting compromised, whether it's an Asus machine or not. Um, there's just no security benefit involved in having another separate update system that Asus runs. Uh, knowing that you already have to be a part of this, you know, particular, uh, you know, vulnerability vector, for lack of a better word, coming from Microsoft why add one from ASUS? Uh, ASUS should really be doing the right thing, which is to get their updates certified by the WHQL and pushed out through Windows Update directly. If they're not going to do that, then the onus is on them to do a much better job than they clearly did in securing their own supply chain. 
That's a great point. And I think we should emphasize that, you know, in a supply chain, it is a chain and you have things at at the start, at the root of the chain that then reach into so many areas, right? You want you run Windows on top of your system and that's running on some hardware that's that's made by some company that but they've sourced everything in that from multiple other manufacturers. And those manufacturers might have licensed firmware that they didn't write to, to enable components of the device. So you end up with this big recursive tree of everyone involved in manufacturing this product. And if you're really concerned about the integrity, you have to you have to worry about the trust with every single one of those. And the farther up that tree you are, the more trust you have or you 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 know that your users are relying on. So if you do manufacture things, if you're responsible for software that runs that then touches very important core roots of trust on a system, it's it's on you to be very responsible and to use industry best practices. And based on, like you said, Jim, how easy it seems, you know, that they were willing to burn this, I, I something makes tells me Asus was not following best practices. So we're still not sure exactly how Asus got compromised. Uh, it was, it seems pretty clearly to have been a, uh, a fairly deep compromise on their network because the attackers got hold of the security keys used to sign these tools to begin with. Asus still hasn't revealed any direct details about what that compromise looks like or how they can be sure that they have, uh, you know, closed the, the doors and made sure that attackers won't get right back in again. In the meantime, they have released a new version of the software update that uh, you can update your updater with so your updater will no longer be owned. And they also have created a scanning tool that you can download to check if your PC is one of those affected. Uh, as the register said, presumably that download is malware free. It's good that they've you know in- invested a little time and updated stuff and cleaned up their infected systems, but really, well, maybe, yeah, really, well, maybe, because that's the bare minimum, right? And unfortunately, their verbiage doesn't really make it seem like they understand the problem. At the same time, we have also updated and strengthened our server-to-end-user software architecture to prevent similar attacks from happening in the future. And yet, that—that's not how this attack worked, right? It wasn't the—it wasn't the connection from the client software to the server. The server got compromised. So if you don't strengthen that, you—you have not solved this problem. Also, you know, as they say on Wikipedia in the square brackets, citation needed. Okay, you strengthened your architecture. How? You made it more difficult for attackers to get control. How? What were the vulnerabilities that the attackers exploited in the first place to get onto your network and steal your keys? How can you be sure that they won't get the next keys? Those are the kind of details we haven't gotten out of ASUS. We also haven't gotten any details on what they're going to do to make sure that even if attackers get on their internal internal networks and uh, you know own a VIP workstation, that shouldn't be enough to manage this kind of compromise that gets pushed out to millions of users. When you're responsible for a, you know, a distribution repository, which is basically what this ASUS live update boils down to, there are ways to secure it from this kind of issue. I mean, this is a relatively small repository that pushes a relatively small set of changes for particular types of hardware. Uh, it doesn't get updated so often that you can't implement checks like, uh, you know, having... The public-facing servers, uh, they should be getting checked, you know, like a tripwire from another machine that's actually checking uh, those servers in the same way that customers would and looking for files that have been updated, making sure that files that have been updated still match, you know, the MD5 sums that are that are uh, published for them. And if they don't, this should be pushing an update to administrators who can ask the question, hey, wait a minute, why did this new version of our live update go out on the servers? I didn't push that. 
Joe, did you push that? Jane, did you push that? No, we got a problem. At minimum, we need rigorous change management processes in place so that this happens in a way that is verifiable, trusted, and yeah, like you say, with external monitoring and verification, right? We have standards for compliance for, you know, let's say public companies that have credit card information. And we should we should think about these software places of trust, right? Package repositories and distributors, they have similar levels of trust because we are we are giving them access to our systems by installing their software. Well, and the other thing is, you know, that that word trust gets thrown around a lot. And there are a lot of fundamental misunderstandings about what it means. Uh, You know, you as an Asus end user, uh, you typically are going to trust that repository. You're trusting Live Update. uh, You're trusting the firmware that is getting distributed through Live Update. Asus themselves should not be trusting it. Uh, The trusted machine from the point of view of somebody who's managing that network that pushes these, uh, you know, these software updates you're not trusting the web server that pushes them. You're not trusting the employee workstations that you might push an update to that system from. What you trust is a very, very stripped down, limited access, separate set of servers that looks for changes like, like what I talked about earlier. And its only function is to scan and look for when things happen and you know push out an alarm to you if something did happen so that you can check those timestamps and match that with a user that actually has access who really did make those changes. Changes. To make this work, at, at least as of the time that Kaspersky first wrote about this, ACES had not invalidated the compromised certificates. So while sure they had, had hopefully, in theory, cleaned up the actual update servers, they could still locally install any of this stuff because they still had access to the certificates. They could sign malicious files and machines out there would trust those as legitimate ACES files. And there's just, I know they probably are taking some time they were probably using that certificate for their own needs and needed to, you know, go through the process to generate a new one. But that is this is crucial stuff to get right. And, you know, this is also the problem. Uh, you don't just use one key and one certificate yes, for like all the you, crypto Jim. stuff you do. You know, this is like you don't just run everything as administrator and then you can't change the administrator password. Right. You know, you've got one certificate for this. You've got one certificate for that. You've got another for the other. And you should be able to replace one of those things without suddenly invalidating, you know, everything that your entire enterprise is doing. So one of the interesting things here is that the backdoor and the ASUS update setup, um, it wasn't really in ASUS's own code. The backdoor was in the C runtime library, which is similar to uh, what happened with the CCleaner case when uh, you know CCleaner also got compromised and pushed out a bunch of malware, and it's happened again in several games. Um, I think this probably has some bearing on the lack of respect that the attackers seem to had for burning, you know, what looks like such a large zero day that, you know, has a scope of millions of users and they're only actually looking to hit like 600 of them, but they go ahead and burn it anyway. Um, once they've learned how to backdoor this C runtime library, that basically means that, you know, anything out there written in Visual C++, they know they've got a good way in. It's relatively low effort. Once they get access to the network, they can drop in this backdoor library they've already got in their back pocket and expect everything to just work. Right. This is stuff that the compiler, as it's, you know, linking and making your final executable, it's runtime support for the C library that you code against as a developer. So this just ships, you know, it's not necessarily the stuff you wrote, it's the stuff the compiler comes with to help you and make everything work. And so if you, a lot of those routines are going to be generic between different binaries. You know, this this also brings the interesting question for the developers in the house, you know, should you have something in your code that's actually checking 
what version of the C runtime it's rung against and, you know, maybe throws an error if something crazy happens with that. Really, this reminds me of the classic uh, Ken Thompson paper, Reflections on Trusting Trust, which we'll have linked in the show notes. Yeah, the Ken Thompson hack is probably the scariest thing I have ever read in my career as a system administrator. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar, Ken Thompson is a legend from way back in the Unix days, and I do mean Unix, not Linux. And uh, the Ken Thompson hack is one in which you compromise not the runtime library, but the actual compiler itself in such a way that all the code produced by that compiler uh, it uh, you know propagates uh, malware in in much the way that a, a virus would, and it isn't necessarily going to do something uh, you know in every single bit of object code produced. But the thing that's really nasty about this is that uh, you know most languages are bootstrapped, meaning that new versions of the compiler for that language are compiled using the last version's compiler. So the question is, you know, if everything that you're doing is compiled with this particular C compiler that might have originally been compromised 20 years ago, that backdoor can persist over version after version after version of that compiler. And it's very difficult to detect because if you're trying to detect it with tools that you compiled using, again, the same compromised compiler, it's not going to let you do it. So this basically means that uh, the only way to truly be sure that you're not affected by Ken Thompson hack is, you know, reviewing your code at the machine language level. I think that really speaks to some of the things we're talking about today because, you know, okay, great. Um, in, in the case of Asus, that we have, a, we have a new updater update that's been rolled out. But if you were previously affected by that Trojan version, how do you know that your firmware is secure, right? I mean, if you've, if, if it overwrote some of your, your UFI firmware and then you've rebooted and restarted the machine, how, how are you going to be able to tell? It's, it's got more access than you do. I would be very wary about the state of my machine after that. And it, in a larger scale, so many of our, you know, we, we use computers to make more computers and we use computers to then do all the secure things that we have. Sure, there have been more and more efforts made to hardware roots of trust and, and other such things. Apple in particular stands out here. And in many cases, that can be good, but we should still be aware we are reliant on the supply chain. Yeah, and you know, in case you're wondering, the answer as to how do you trust a machine that's once been infected with malware, the answer is you don't. That's the canonical answer at any rate. Uh, not referring to the folks who make Ubuntu, but uh, you know, you you don't ever trust a machine that has once been infected with malware. Uh, if that's a serious machine that you take seriously, you pave it and you reload it. You reload the entire operating system and uh, everything comes in from backup and you trust nothing because the problem is that you can't run code on a compromised machine to clean the compromise off that machine because you you don't ever really know that you've gotten anywhere with it. Where this gets really nasty here with the Asus Live update is we're not just talking about software. We're also talking about firmware that gets installed on, you know, motherboards and uh, video cards. And once you're talking about code that, you know, gets flashed onto, you know, firmware ROMs, uh, there becomes a real question of, you know, can you ever get that off given that a lot of the time, you know, the update mechanism is also a part of the actual firmware that's already on the ROM? How can you be absolutely certain? Do you have to throw the whole piece of hardware away? Yeah, exactly. And and where, where it becomes interesting too, right, is, is we saw a level of targeting here. And we rely on manufacturers, but manufacturers 
also have suppliers. So the, the higher up you go, the more dangerous this gets and the more skeptical you have to be. Because if you can infiltrate the machines that are used to actually flash the chips that are put in the computers in the first place, well, now you've got access to everything. You do. And, uh, you know, Wes, I forget. I mean, a Asus is huge, but um, wh where do they rank again on, uh, you know, the, the Windows actual OEM machine manufacturer? Aren't they like seventh? As of 2017 unit sale numbers, Asus was the fifth largest PC vendor. Scary stuff. Yeah, we don't really have hard numbers on, you know, just how many people were infected. Uh, Kaspersky says 57,000 of their users had downloaded and installed the backdoored version. So you can extrapolate from there. You won't get anything precise, but it does signify that this is a problem and it's continued to be a problem. The hardware we have these days is getting more and more complicated. Just think about, you know, the hard drives we use with things like SSDs that are all running complicated embedded operating systems running, running the controllers in there. And that contains your whole disk, right? If you can't trust what's coming out of your hard drive, how can you trust anything your computer's doing? Yeah, you know, you also have to worry about, uh, you know, personally as a 100% uh, Linux shop, um, I don't really have to worry about Asus Live Update. Uh, you know, that wouldn't have been installed on any of my machines. You know, even Windows machines, I would never have installed that, you know, for exactly the reasons we talked about before. You know, I want to minimize, you know, the types of exposure I get. But uh, Asus is not only the world's fifth largest PC vendor. Once you count in, you know, the share of custom-built machines that have Asus motherboards, you've expanded that reach even further. And, you know, you have to worry about the fact that even if you never download anything from Asus, you know, once an APT gets the kind of access to Asus's network that, in my opinion, must have been possible you know, to steal their signing keys for their infrastructure, what if there's other zero days that we don't know about that are going on to the UEFI and the BIOS on these motherboards right from the factory? That can affect you regardless of your choice of operating system or whether you choose to download something else from Asus or run any of their code at a later date. You know, this is very low level code that could be running behind the scenes on your machine, no matter what you're doing with it or what operating system you use. I don't know about you folks, but that makes me feel like I need a shower. Amen. You mentioned not running this stuff on Windows, and actually, on the Linux side of the house, some things have changed recently with the advent of the Linux Vendor Firmware Service. Just this week, actually, there was a big announcement where the Linux Foundation has welcomed the Linux Vendor Firmware Service as a new project under their umbrella. Unfortunately, uh, I just checked right now, and as of this recording, Asus is not participating in that service which provides a centralized location to distribute firmware updates that are compatible and can be installed from Linux. Yeah, are they actually uh, running a repo as well? I, I knew that they were providing a, uh, it was basically like a standardized installer so you could do your flashing, you know, without having to do the horrible hacks of, you know, like booting from a fake floppy or, you know, whatever. But uh, I didn't know they were actually running a repository for the updates. Yeah, there's a UEFI capsule format uh, and some software around that, but you can also use the service, which pairs with the firmware update tool. Uh, it even has some integrations with stuff like GNOME software, uh, and you can just receive the updates almost like any other software package update. Wonder what the supply chain looks like for that code distribution. And that is a great question. Now, Jim, this story got me thinking. This really isn't the first time that we've been talking about Asus and their... Uh, not so great security practices, is it? 
No, it is not. Uh, Darknet Diaries, another uh, podcast, did a really good episode on the Asus router gate back in 2016. Uh, to make a long story short, Asus decided that it would be an absolutely great idea to enable an FTP server on their routers, public facing with absolutely no authentication required that would allow access to all sorts of things, including any attached storage that users had plugged into the router to serve on their own local network, whether it be uh, you know, by like a USB hard drive or just a thumb drive plugged into the USB port on the router with no authentication required whatsoever that could be port scanned and discovered from the internet and all those files could be read, written to, whatever. And... You know, as, as horrifying as that sounds, what made it even worse, way worse in my opinion, and we see this a lot with the big vendors, uh, you know, when this problem was discovered and reported, uh, you know, just basically a random user started poking at his router and discovered, you know, oh my goodness, there's unauthenticated FTP available from the internet and, you know, I can't even put a password on it if I want to and it shows all my files. When he reported that to Asus, uh, he got a response that, yeah, 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 we think that's a good idea. We're, we're going to keep doing that. And eventually they actually had to get uh, compelled to comply by the US FTC um, and were forced to uh, make a pretty big settlement. And part of that settlement included setting up a uh, security audits for the next 20 years. I wonder how that audit process is going because, uh, boy, they'll sure have some things to talk about at their next meeting. That is a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I've seen that ASUS had to establish and maintain, quote, a comprehensive security program subject to independent audits for the next 20 years, unquote. But I'm not sure what the scope is on that. Like, was that only for the consumer router division? Did it cover the entire company? Is this issue where they got their keys stolen something that should have been uncovered through that program and through those audits, or is it completely outside that scope? Yeah, those are all the little details that end up making a big difference in stories like these. And unfortunately, we just don't know. At any point, can a U.S. court actually compel ASUS to put some grown-ups in the room? We just don't know. You know, when we have these kind of supply chain attacks that, uh, you know, push this malware out to, you know, such a, a large potential audience, what happens when the device is affected by that uh, rather than general purpose computers or motherboards or video cards or you name it? You know, everybody is just going nuts with the whole smart speaker craze, whether it's Amazon Echo or Google Home, uh, you know, Siri, you know, you name it. What happens when your smart speaker gets compromised with something like this? And, uh, you know, you got somebody bugging a million homes, literally hearing every word you say. Those are devices that are intimately connected to our daily lives and many of our online accounts. The other thing this makes me think of is, you know, we've been talking about a lot of physical stuff, hardware, those sorts of supply chains. But in the in the Amazon example, the you know, or the case of smart devices, not only do you have a device in your home, but you're running various applications provided from who knows where that you enable on that device, and they're relying on any number of software packages and libraries that they receive. And that's one of the great things about open source, but it, it applies to proprietary packages as well. We've recently seen several, you know, compromised malicious uploads to, I can think of NPM in particular, but also <laughs> to, to Python, right? There was the Colorama package, which looked similar to the real Colorama without a Q. And uh, unfortunately, it contained some visual basic code that would run only on Windows servers. But it's an example of, 
you know, we all just sort of depend on libraries for, you know, decoding JSON, making HTTP requests, all kinds of stuff, including SDKs from Amazon or whatever cloud provider you're using, smart speaker manufacturer, whatever system you're integrating with. Those are all also vectors, and I don't think we do a good enough job of auditing what dependencies we're using. No, we don't. And, you know, Wes, this is one of my favorite hobby horses. Uh, you know, one of the, the biggest problems with the Windows software world is that, you know, it just accustoms users to this idea of you go and you download the executable from the random website and, you know, you run it and install it on your computer. And, uh, you know, we see a lot of people who convert to Linux trying to use Linux the same way. And it was a bad idea on Windows, but it's just the way things were done. It's a bad idea in the Linux world, and it's not the way things are done. You know, we have centralized package management. We have this concept that, you know, the vast majority of software that you run on your computer, you should be able to get from your distributions repositories, where you have package maintainers whose whole job, you know, is to actually build stable versions of this and maintain it and, uh, you know, check that it builds properly and it runs properly. And now this isn't a silver bullet, you know, uh, only installing software that comes from Canonical's repositories or Fedora's, you know, uh, whatever distribution you happen to run. It's not a hundred percent guarantee that you'll never have malware on your machine or poorly built software on your machine, but it goes a long way towards limiting these kind of vectors that, you know, all of these different possible ways you could end up with bad code on your system. I'd like to be able to end today's episode on a bit of a happier note, but unfortunately, I don't have one. I think we just need to expect better from our manufacturers and system providers. I'm looking at you, Asus. Shots fired. Unfortunately, it's often hard for consumers to, to tell, right? You don't necessarily know, and if you don't closely follow this stuff, it's difficult to vote with your wallet because people don't necessarily advertise. And even if you do advertise on security, it's easy to add a line that says, you know, we, we are secure, we provide updates, whatever you want to say. It's, there's just not a lot of good tools for us to judge the security of the infrastructure of a private entity that's providing us updates. And so unfortunately, there's not much we can do. Yeah, you know, we see that over and over. Uh, every vendor out there says that they're, you know, they're the best at the cyber. You know, they've got a, they've got a page dedicated to how amazing they are at cybersecurity. And, you know, then this kind of thing happens. And uh, there's only so much that you can expect an end user to follow and to understand about these issues. But I do think it's fair to say that this kind of security issue should come with a real pocketbook impact to a company like Asus that makes such romper room security errors, like pushing routers that have unauthenticated FTP exposed to the internet and, uh, you know, allowing people into their network to steal keys and sign software and continuing to use the key themselves to sign the software, even after they know it's compromised. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that even if you don't really understand all that stuff, when you, when you hear about it, you should be asking questions about, you know, should I buy things from this vendor? Are there any vendors that provide similar products that I'm not hearing things in the news about how they got owned? These are all great points. And I think as, you know, people who pay attention, it's on us too to, to try to educate people around us and uh, talk about things and make it known when companies do good and make it known when they don't. You know, Wes, on that note, I... I I think this story means it, it, it's time for me to put my money where my own mouth is. I have been largely building my systems that use consumer motherboards with Asus boards, and I think it's time I learn my own lesson here and switch to another vendor like Gigabyte that's not constantly in the news with this kind of security problem. It's one small step, but I'm glad you're taking it. On that positive note, it's time we get out of here. But before we do, 
I don't want you to think that computers are all doom and gloom. Oh no, there's tons of great things to learn about them. One place you can do that is at the upcoming Linux Fest Northwest. I'll be there, Jim will be there, and a ton of your favorite Jupiter Broadcasting hosts and community members. We'll have a link. There's still time to make plans if you're nearby and want to join us. It'll be a great time. Don't miss out. Also coming up, another learning opportunity. On April 2nd, before Linux Unplugged, we'll have a live Ansible study group. So if you're interested in Ansible or you already know it and you just want to share some of your expertise, we're welcome to meet everyone. We just want to talk Ansible, share some top tricks and tips, and have an excellent time before a live Linux Unplugged. If you're already experienced, maybe using Angular or Ruby on Rails, well, we'd love you to join Linux Academy. We're hiring right now, full-time remote position. We're building a great platform for online learning. Come join us. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's another episode. You can find me on Twitter at JRSSNet. And Wes? I'm at Wes Payne. See you in a couple of weeks. 